<clears throat> we are happy, my brothers and sisters, to have as our speaker today the newest member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles. A native of Brigham City, he attended Utah State University, where he received both his bachelor and master's degrees, and then, in accordance with church training, repented and received his Doctor of Education degree from the Brigham Young University in 1962. He was in the second class of those to receive advanced degrees from this institution. His career in education includes experience as a seminary instructor, coordination, coordinator of Indian Affairs at the Intermountain Indian School in Brigham City, Assistant Administrator of Institutes and Seminaries of the Church from 1955 to 1961. While holding this latter position, he became a member of the Administrative Council of both the BYU and the Institutes and Seminaries. And it was while he was holding these positions that Brother Packer, in October of 61, was called as an assistant to the Council of the Twelve. And since that time, he has also served as president of the New England Mission from, 18, from 1965 to 1968. You've been interested in knowing that during World War II, he served as a bomber pilot in the Pacific Theater, and it was at that time he dedicated his life to the service of the Lord. He and his lovely wife, Donna, who is here on the stand with him, are the proud parents of ten children, and I am happy to introduce him to you today as our devotional speaker, and he always has a message of great significance. I come to you this morning from an experience, an experience, attesting that I'm sure one would not want to experience more than once in his lifetime, but I come with extended faith and with a positive witness, and I want to affirm to you that whatever other qualifications that I may not have, and I guess they're numerous for the calling that's come to me. The one I do have is the witness. I know for sure that Jesus is the Christ, that this is his church, that we're led by a prophet, and that the church is on the right course. I have worried a good deal about this address because most of my preparation was to have been done this last week, and that was somewhat interrupted. I'm fortunate because right after this address, I'm going to the Salt Lake Airport and going to Europe, and uh, hope in the course of the next two or three weeks while I'm there, I can kind of be out among the people and have a chance to catch up on some internal things that need settling. I uh, know a young couple that's recently became engaged, 
and they're planning to be married this summer, early. And uh, what I have to say, I have to say to them. Now, I can only give a sampling or two of some of the things I want to say to them, and I'll give them my notes afterwards, and there's a good deal more there that they may want to look at. A few years ago, I gave a talk to this student body entitled Eternal Love. And uh, for them, I had worked a bit on, I guess it would be a sequel. Now, the things I have to say to them may not exactly suit you. Nevertheless, you may want to listen. Some of you, I'm sure, are preparing, likewise, for an already scheduled marriage, or preparing to schedule a marriage, or preparing to get prepared <laughs> to schedule a marriage. And I'm sure there are many of you who are all prepared, save for one detail. <laughs> you just haven't convinced anyone they should join you. Now, I begin with the closing words of that other address. I'd like to read them. In conclusion, I picture you coming to the temple to be sealed for time and for all eternity. I yearn to talk to you about the sacred sealing ordinance, but this we do not do outside those sacred walls. The transcendent nature of all that is conferred upon us at the marriage altar is so marvelous that it's worth all of the waiting and all of the resisting. I picture you as I have seen you often, the young man, masculine, clear of vision, stalwart of frame, firm to accept the responsibilities of husband and father, and a bride unassuming, beautifully feminine, an inspiration and a sweetheart, and dependent upon him. But this is not the fulfillment of the love story. In the book or the play or on the stage, the curtain comes down here, but it is not so in real love. This is not the conclusion, only the beginning. This picture then I see, and were I an artist and had I the power, I would paint this picture over and over again, not with a canvas or with a brush, but with counsel and admonition and encouragement and blessing and forgiveness, with reassurance, with the truth. The exalted concept of marriage and courtship and of romantic love as taught in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that they are ordained of God. Love is a promise. There is a Holy Spirit of promise. I cannot frame this picture. I would not if I could, for it has no bounds. Love like this may have a beginning, but never through all eternity need it have an end. And it is here that we begin this counsel, these few suggestions to this young couple as they now prepare to meet one another at the altar in the temple. I think of the girl who suffered a hectic and uncertain courtship, and on her wedding day she said in rapture and joy, O oh, mother, at last I'm at the end of all my troubles. And Her mother wisely observed, Yes, my dear, you just don't know which end. 
you too have solved the major problems of your courtship. Both of you are members of the church. Both are active. You young men hold the Melchizedek priesthood to fulfill the mission. Both of you qualify for temple recommends. So the things I have to say are over and above and beyond that. And as you set sail on the sea of matrimony, you have all of the brightest hopes for a full and a rich and a happy life. Now there are some basic things about marriage that I hope you'll keep in mind. I'll mention only one or two of them. Perhaps one or two of them could be ignored for a time and your marriage will still be basically happy. Perhaps even several of them can be ignored briefly and you may still get by. But I am positively convinced that if many of them are ignored for very long, the result must be unhappiness and misery with the ominous ever-present threat that the ship of matrimony may break up on the shoals of disaster and the passengers of fidelity and love and hope and of happiness all be drowned in a sea of tears. Now, some time ago there came to my office a couple to meet an appointment that had been arranged by their stake president. They were in their early 30s. They had four children. They uh, had wrestled endlessly with some very difficult problems, had wept a great deal, had experienced a great deal of counseling, and had finally determined that they must get a divorce. Now, there was no third party involved. There was no moral transgression. Life in their home was fraught with such problems that it became a literal and living hell for them. They could stand it no longer, and so they decided that as bad as divorce is and as disappointing as failure would be, either of them was better than going on as they were. I invited the wife to tell me about the problem. As soon as she began to speak, the husband snapped at her, and, Why don't you tell him the truth? You'd even lie to a general authority. Why don't you tell it the way it is? I invited him to be quiet and listen <laughs> while she had her say. He, in turn, was invited to speak and had not completed a sentence before she, in her icy bitterness, accused him of being the cause of all the trouble. And then I had to invite her to listen if she would. They concluded, and I was going to ask a question, but thought the evidence was clear, and so made the statement. Both of you came from broken homes, didn't you? They both looked surprised and then nodded their heads affirmatively. Tell me about it, I invited. Each told me of the unhappiness and heartbreak of seeing their parents separate in divorce when they were little youngsters. The husband was about seven and his wife, I believe, was about nine when their families had broken up. Everything they had believed in and trusted, everything by way of security had fallen apart before them. And many of you have had that experience, unfortunately. My heart was touched for them. I thought there was a certain innocence about them. Somehow they were entangled in bitterness and unhappiness and misery and didn't know how they got there and didn't have any idea how they were going to escape. It was as the old prophet, Old Testament prophet, 
had spoken so many centuries before. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, but it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. And perhaps the Lord knew all of this when he said, I will visit the iniquities of the parents upon the children to the third and the fourth generations. And here it was happening to them. Their parents had broken up in divorce. They were suffering the misery of domestic disorder. And now their little children, their innocent children, the third generation, were to be visited with the same penalties. Almost by accident, I asked a question of her. I said, what is it you want of him? And for the first time, she became a, a woman. She started to cry, her face softened, and she seemed more like a little girl. And she said, all I want is for him to treat me like brother somebody treats his wife. That's all I want. Now, you know what she'd seen. They'd come to church, and they were attending church, fighting and bickering and miserable, complaining, and then brother and sister, somebody would come in with their little family, couple in love and helping one another, nudging one another when their children did something. Well, you know what she'd seen. And somehow she knew that whatever that was, she didn't have it in her marriage, and that's all she wanted. I asked him what he wanted of her, and he said, all I want is for her to be a good wife. Now, where would she learn to be a good wife? In school? In a book? Imagine it. She'd never lived in a home where a wife had showed proper respect, love for her husband, or where there was a feeling of warmth and love. And how would he ever know how to treat a wife like brother somebody treated his? Imagine it. Dream it up. What book could he read that in? What course in school would teach him that? He'd been deprived by the misfortunes of his parents and now was paying the price. And his little children, I remind you, the third generation, were now to suffer the penalties. It has been interesting to me that many couples who come for help, some of them with grown children, haven't the vaguest idea <clears throat> about some of the very basic considerations in a husband-wife relationship. Some women long married have no idea, it seems, about how a man is put together, what his needs are, how he can be lifted and inspired and encouraged. And many men, though have lived with a woman for years, don't seem to have the faintest idea about what a woman needs, how she can be inspired and made perfect. Now, first, one suggestion with reference to him that you may want to think about. He needs to know that he's protecting you. He needs to feel and know that he's the leader in the family. He needs a wife and a sweetheart with whom he can share his love, with whom he can have its full and complete expression. Riches you not, but leaves him poor indeed. 
There's a role for manhood, and there's a role for womanhood. And there's ominous persuasion in our society for those roles to blend. The adversary would have them disappear. Men want to dress now, many of them like women, and women like men. There are critical, ominous, hideous dangers in our society. There are many women's organizations moving vigorously for so-called equality. Well, I hope they don't get the equality that will see them cleaning the streets and working in the factories and harvesting the crops and be considered but a unit in the labor force. Stay beautifully feminine, female, stay a woman. For the sake and for the inspiration of his manhood, do that. You be yourself and uh, don't best him in all his fields of activity. Best yourself in the lovely feminine fields, and then he, in a very real way, becomes captive to you. There is great peril in this church, to this church and kingdom of God, if our men stray from the role of manhood and our sisters from the role of womanhood. It was John Ruskin who said, The buckling of the knight's armor by his lady's hand was not a mere caprice of romantic fashion. It is the type of an eternal truth that the soul's armor is never well set to the heart unless a woman's hand has braced it. And it is only when she braces it loosely that the honor of manhood fails. Now, I'll mention some things <clears throat> to you, young man, about her later, but now to both of you. As you enter the marriage covenant, never a crossword, not one. It's neither necessary nor desirable. There are many who teach that it's normal and expected for domestic difficulty and bickering and strife to be a part of that marriage relationship. That is false doctrine. It's neither necessary nor desirable. And I know that it's possible to live together in love with never the first crossword ever passing between you. I went home teaching years ago to an elderly little woman. I was not married at the time and occasionally without a companion. She was a shut-in and she dearly loved lemon ice cream. Occasionally, I'd go down to the Peach City Ice Cream Company and get a half pint of lemon ice cream and make her house the first stop. She appreciated very much this simple kindness, and one evening, she said she wanted to give me some counsel. She told me the story of her life, marriage in the temple to a wonderful elder, living together and beginning a family, a call to open the mission field in one of the continents of the world, happy mission return back to the little town, entering into life's pursuit. Then she focused in on a Monday morning, a blue, dreary, wash day Monday morning, gray and cloudy outside and in, cross children, 
little irritations, a poor meal, and finally an innocent remark by one snapped up by the other, and soon husband and wife were speaking crossly and critically to one another. As he left for work, she said, I just had to follow him to the gate and call that one last biting, spiteful remark after him. And then as the tears came, she told me of an accident that day, and he didn't return for work. For fifty years, she sobbed, I've regretted that the last words he ever heard from my lips was that one last biting, spiteful remark. Then came her lecture to me. It was good counsel. You know what it was without my repeating it. Will Carlton, in his story, The First Settlers, pictures a father leaving an isolated cabin after several irritating experiences of looking for a cow that was, would get into the woods. He made some caustic remark to his bride about whether she thought maybe this time, when he was gone, at least she could tend the cow. A violent thunderstorm arose, and he returned with great anxiety from work in the woods to find a note on the table of the cabin. The cow was frightened by the lightning, she'd written, apologetically, but I think I can find her. When he found his sweetheart, it was too late, and the author moralized over his heartbreak with these words, good words for every couple entering marriage. Boys flying kites haul in their white-winged birds. You can't do that when you're flying words. Careful with fire is good advice, we know. Careful with words is ten times doubly so. Thoughts unexpressed may sometimes fall back dead, but God himself can't kill them once they're said. Next, a thought to both of you. Recently, I went to the temple to perform a marriage. I found one of the witnesses to be a young man, bearded and with odd hippie-type glasses, and I felt uneasy. I did also a few days later at another marriage when the groom wore a beard. Now, not that there's anything wrong with a beard. Not in and of itself. Many of our leaders have worn them. Brigham Young wore a beard. Lorenzo Snow, Joseph F. Smith, George Albert Smith, to name a few. The thing that made me uneasy was it just that uh, it's another indication in our day. And here was an indication that this was a young man who wanted ever so much to be in the world and to look like the world. It seems so strange to me that uh, they would come to the temple and say, we want to experience the most exalted and the highest ordinance in this life, and yet at once to insist on saying, however, I am part of the world, and I want to be like the world and look like it, now, to follow after the pattern of the world is to consent to influences that will erode and weaken and may ultimately destroy a marriage. It is ever so difficult to fight the world 
in the marriage relationship. Now, I worry not about the beard, but about what it means. It must mean something, you know. We would do well to know who wrote the tune to which we dance. There may be some things to which society consents. They'll consent to almost anything now. There are some things that we'd do better to avoid. There are some fashions, there are some appearances, there are some gestures that we'd do well to steer around, to avoid, to sit out. Now, one last comment and then a conclusion, and I'll give the rest of this to you. As you venture forth into marriage and you begin the task of raising a family, uh, you come to know how valuable privacy is. You can't always choose where you live, but often you can, and when you can, keep in mind that it is a wise thing to live so that children can be dominated by the home environment rather than by the neighborhood environment. That is, have a place where your children can play by themselves. If others venture into their playground area, they come as guests and must meet the standards that have been set and the limitations that are established by the ideals that are yours. Now, many homes are designed and many neighborhoods are designed as though no one was going to raise any children. There's a natural environment for raising of children and to successfully propagate the species in an unnatural environment and meet with any success means extra labor and care and expense. Many an architect has foisted upon an unwitting client the whims and fancies of his impractical designs, or perhaps the reverse has been persuaded to create something of the whims and fancies of his clients that aesthetically have some appeal but practically are hardly a place to raise children. I've seen some little families who could afford what they thought they wanted and were having problems raising the families and they didn't know why. And I thought an extra petition or two in the house would make a big difference in how frantic and haggard a poor mother would get. It's a lovely thought to have an open and airy home environment with no partitions and with all areas open to sight and to sound. It's another thing to try to domesticate little children beyond their natural tendency to uh, endure them instead of appreciate them, to suffer them instead of to love them. It would be simple with doors that would close and spaces that would be private and quiet and some spaces that could be littered and, if you will, spaces that could be messed up like little kids want them to be. Now, they haven't improved much over the years on the design of the knife and fork and spoon, have they? Oh, they can decorate them a little bit, but uh, not much of a change. And it's pretty hard to improve on the old basic home design where there's privacy and a place indoors and outdoors that looks as though somebody intended to raise a family there. So as you young couple move into your life together and have a choice or two, you, you ought not to feel penalized because of your poverty and financial conditions. You're stuck with something more traditional and less exciting than you might dream up if you're able to put into brick and lumber and plaster some of the whims of fancy that might prove to be silly before you're through. Now, another word on this home. You can do a great deal to create in your home the atmosphere of peace and hominess and reverence and tranquility and security. You can do this without much to live on 
Or you can create something angular and cold and psychedelic and artificial. In a thousand different ways, your youngsters will be influenced by the choice you make. You can set the tone. It can be quiet and peaceful, where quiet and powerful strength can grow, or it can be bold and loud and turn the main string of tension a bit tighter in little children as they're growing up until, at last, that main spring breaks. Well, I said we could but sample these things. In conclusion to you, young man, when you go to the temple, there will be organized a unit of the Church, the eternal unit. You may be a bishop of a ward someday or the president of a stake, but from these you will be released. The highest calling that can come to you in mortality is to preside over a home and to be a husband and as a father. President McKay was speaking quite literally when he said all the celestial kingdom is is an extension of the, a happy home into the eternities. Make sure, young man, that you treat your wife with reverence and with respect. Treat her as your sweetheart, your loving companion, the mother of your children. In this marriage relationship comes the greatest of exaltation and the greatest experiences of life. You'll come to know that most of what you know that's worth knowing you learn from your children. And then you'll come to know that it's a simple pattern to succeed. All you have to do is live the gospel. All you have to do is go to church and pay your tithing and respond to calls and to try to do a responsive and dedicated uh, work in the callings that come to you. Because you see, the whole thing is put together. The ultimate end of all of the activities in the Church are aimed at seeing a father and a mother, a husband and a wife, and their children happy together at home. Now a word of courage. Never was there a more glorious time to be moving into this era of life. The ominous clouds that settle around us can uh, can't touch you, as the song said, thick with blessings. You know, don't fear. It's a marvelous, marvelous time to have found one another, to learn to love one another, and now to promise to one another eternally. God lives. This is His church. It is calculated to see you happily and successfully through mortality of this I bear witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.